Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 33 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. We invite those who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming events can be found online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest speaker. Sue Monk Kidd has been described as a truly original Southern voice. She is the author of the modern classic, The Secret Life of Bees, the best-selling novel, The Mermaid Chair, and her latest novel on life in the South, The Invention of Wings. She has received wide acclaim for her books on feminine spirituality and theology as well, including God's Joyful Surprise, When the Heart Waits, and Dance of the Dissident Daughter. In tonight's presentation, Life is a Story, the Art of Writing and the Spiritual Journey, Ms. Kidd will explore, among other things, how writing shapes her spirituality and how spirituality shapes her writing. She has come to Minneapolis from her home in Florida, so please join me. <laughs> she told me it was 78 degrees when she left. Join me in giving an extra warm welcome to one of the, one of the literary world's most respected and beloved writers, Sue Monk Kidd. Thank you very much. I am so pleased and honored to be part of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. And I want to thank the sponsors for bringing me here. I think it's a very warm reception, a warm place here in Minneapolis tonight. <laughs> well, I'm going to speak on the writing life and the, the life of the soul. Now, I am a novelist and I am a memoirist. Therefore, I have a propensity to tell a story and to get personal. So that's what you're going to get. My impulse to write was probably inborn. And it would evolve into a, a writing life that really is about the spiritual life, too. And I'm going to tell you a highly abridged story of my writing life, my work, and how it intersects with um, my spirituality. By the age of 10, I was announcing to everyone that I was going to be a writer. And I was writing little stories and announcing to my brothers that we needed to create a neighborhood newspaper and writing novels, and pretty much assured of my life as a writer. So as a child, I think I found this one true small light in myself, and then, of course, I lost it. Because this is often what happens in the spiritual life. We find the light, we lose the light, we find the light. It's, it's always a kind of search and reclamation, isn't it? When I went to college, I studied nursing, and I abandoned my writing life. 
I think this was perhaps my first failure of courage when it comes to writing. Um, I decided to study nursing because it was more traditional, because it's a noble profession and I admire it greatly, and because it was in the mid-1960s. Um, but as time went on, I became increasingly homesick for myself. Do you know what I'm talking about? That feeling inside where you're longing for your true self, for your place of belonging in the world. Um, I think that's how the soul speaks to us often, through that restlessness in our spirit, through that sense of yearning. Um, I began to read, at the age of 29, Thomas Merton, and this would change my life. I discovered, for the first time, the interior life. I discovered the reality of it, that there was actually this inner life that we could call the life of the soul. When I read New Seeds of Contemplation, it cracked open some kind of very deep hunger in me that I had not known before. It was a hunger, I think, for the deepest thing in myself, for what Merton called the true self. And this was a real awakening. It was probably not coincidental that around this time or soon after, at the age, actually at the age of 30 and on my 30th birthday, that I began to write again. I walked into the kitchen on my 30th birthday and I announced to my two toddlers and my husband that I was going to be a writer. Um, they were eating their cereal and he was trying to get them to eat their cereal and they took it all in stride. That was my annunciation in the kitchen. And my plan was very earnest, but it was highly implausible. I think of it now as my great absurdity. But I do believe that every life needs at least one of these, at least one great absurdity, um, perhaps more, you know, that we need to take our own breath away once in a while. But I didn't know anything about writing. I mean, all I really had was this impulse of my heart. I had worked as a nurse for, since graduating from college in uh, pediatrics, obstetrical, and surgical units. So it was my great absurdity. And of course, what I'm talking about here is one of the key and central things, I think, in the life of writing and in the life of the soul, which is to find our place of belonging. I wrote, I had some quotations stenciled on the wall of my stairwell that led up to my writing study. And the very first one is, a woman must have a room of her own. <laughs> and this is essential, I think, not just for women, but particularly for women, especially if you are going to cultivate the life of the soul and the writing life. But what metaphorically that's talking about is finding what we belong to. Well, creativity, I think, is essentially a spiritual experience. At least it is for me. I think it is a conversation that one has between oneself and one's soul. It's not always a good conversation, but it is some kind of conversation. The poet Rilke once gave some advice to an aspiring writer, and he said, uh, 
And this also, I, by the way, I stenciled on a wall, the wall in my stairwell. He said, go into yourself and see how deep is the place from which your life takes rise. Or it can be in translated, from which your life flows. I think there's a realm inside of us. We could call it the inner life or the interior life or the life of the soul or something else. Uh, Merton often referred to it as the true self. And I think my 30-year-old self was trying to start up a conversation with this place. What I suppose I have in mind here is a kind of contemplative experience. It's very easy to lose touch with this part of ourselves, especially in our contemporary culture. I think we often feel, at least I do, besieged by life. I think the world seduces us with an artificial sense of urgency sometimes. But the soul doesn't move at the same pace as the world. The creative life doesn't, at least mine doesn't. I think it doesn't, it has a completely different, slower pace about it. So contemplative moments, I think moments of being, help us, help me cultivate this life I'm talking about. Um, I've oft, I often say to myself that there must be a silence beneath my words. If there is not a deep silence beneath my words, then my words are probably empty. So the day after my 30th birthday, I started writing quite earnestly. Oh, I was so earnest. <laughs> I, I would eventually publish my, a book, When the Heart Waits, which was about moving through a spiritual crisis. It was about the ascent and descent and ascent we make in the spiritual life and these interior passages. I'm always fascinated with process more than anything else, that process that goes on inside the human spirit. Um, then I wrote what would become my most difficult book, the book I had to take the deepest breath for, the book that intimidated me the most, and that was The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. I remember sitting at the computer writing this book, thinking, I can't say that. And then taking the breath, you know, and saying it anyway. I finally put a little quotation on my desk that was a quote by Nice Nin, which says, the role of the writer is not to say what we can all say. It is to say what we are unable to say. And that takes a certain amount of courage, I suppose. Um, the Dance of the Dissident Daughter had a very freeing effect on me. Uh, it, in many ways, liberated me. And in my early 40s, the most unexpected thing happened after writing this novel. I had this sudden, enormous pull to write fiction. I didn't see that coming. I would be lying now if I told you that I wasn't also daunted by the idea of writing fiction, I think I was afraid of becoming visible in the world in a whole new way, you know, a way that, again, I didn't know anything about. The great novelist uh, Eudora Welty from Mississippi said, no art ever came out of not risking your neck. 
I don't know why it always felt like I was risking my neck, but it did. It's, I look back on it and I think, isn't that strange that I was afraid of telling the truth of my own experience or um, changing course in the middle of my creative life? But there can be something quite terrifying about becoming visible. It's like the poet David White said, revelation can be terrible because you can't go back again. So there is another quote I put on my stairwell, which is a quote by Cynthia Ozick, which says, writing is an act of courage. The courage to begin, the courage to put your authentic voice in the world, the courage to change course, to be true to the conversation that's going on side, inside, the real conversation. The first piece of fiction I wrote was The Secret Life of Bees, and I had a pretty strong conviction about the idea for this book. I thought it was a novel that I was supposed to write. And I took the first chapter, which is all I had, I wrote the first chapter, I took it to a writer's conference, a very esteemed one. The first one I'd attended as a fiction writer. I'd never published any fiction. And my teacher read it, and he said, he didn't think it had any potential as a novel. <laughs> so he advised me to turn it into a short story. And I thought about this. I was a novice, and I listened to my teacher, and I turned it into a short story. It was published in a small literary journal, and they paid me with uh, five free copies. And I put it away, and I never thought I would revisit it again. Four years went by. And by a stroke of luck, really, and I'd li I like to think a little hard work, I was invited to read a short story at the New York Arts Club. I had gone on writing short stories, trying to find my voice in fiction. And when they asked me to do this, it was suggested to me that perhaps I should read something Southern, being as I was a Southerner, and as they said, people just love that stuff up here. That's what they said. <laughs> so I looked through my file, and there was The Secret Life of Beasts short story, which I really hadn't thought of. And I pulled it out, and I thought, well, that is Southern. And I read it that night, and there happened to be a real New York literary agent in the audience who came up to me and without missing a beat said, and I quote, I hope that's the first chapter of your novel. <laughs> you see, there is probably some lesson in this, you know, about listening to your own creative instincts, again, about courage, risking your neck a little bit. But I don't think I was really ready to write that novel four years earlier. And in a weird sort of circumventing way, I found the right timing to do it. But it took me back to my original idea that this was a novel. And so I returned to it. And if you've read it, you know it's set in South Carolina in 1964 during Freedom Summer. And I got this image in my head of a white girl lying in bed at night, about 14 years old, 
and bees were coming out of the wall and flying around in her bedroom. Now, this was actually based on a memory I had because I grew up in a country house in Georgia where bees lived in one of the walls, and that's a whole other story. <laughs> we Southerners know how to normalize our eccentricity, I assure you. <laughs> so we just lived with that for a very long time. But when I got this image in my mind, I asked myself, who is this girl and what does she want? Because this image wouldn't really leave me. And I decided her name was Lily Owens and she was lying there longing for her mother. And once I knew that, I could write the story. And it's really a book about her journey toward healing a terrible wound in her life, a feeling of guilt and betrayal and abandonment. Um, it seems like all of my novels turn out being the search for belonging. And this is her search, and she does this in the most American way. She goes on a quest. The novelist John Gardner said, there are only two plots in American fiction. A stranger comes to town or somebody goes on a trip. <laughs> and Lily goes on a trip, and she ends up in this pink house with three African-American sisters. And the reason this happened, I'm quite sure, is because what I really wanted to do was to write a story about women, about a community of women, and the strengths and bonds of women. A review in a London newspaper said, of The Secret Life of Bees said, it's To Kill a Mockingbird Meets the Yaya Sisterhood. <laughs> Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I kind of liked it. <laughs> there was a union analyst in Toronto who wrote to me after the book came out and said that the pink house is a womb through which Lily was reborn. See, I'm, I'm always getting enlightened about what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't, and I'm serious. I really am. I mean, of course, I did think and know inside that the strength and bonds and community of women can be healing. It can be very healing. And I think these communities can empower us in so many ways. And crucial in the story for me was that at the center of this household, there is a statue of a black Madonna. She's the queen bee in the hive. She's the image of the divine feminine. What has been missing something ancient missing in human experience for a very long time. And Lily's search for a mother is really a kind of reflection of that. My novel, The Mermaid Chair, is again about a woman's search for belonging, but in a different way. It's about her search to belong to herself. So it's a much more subtle search. It's about a woman who, in the middle of her marriage, after about 20 years, up and falls in love with a Benedictine monk. Now, this precipitates a crisis in her life, as you can imagine. And I think, it, as many crises are, if we allow them, they can become a kind of summons to some place we need to go. And this crisis summoned her to this place, 
of self-belonging. And I think what I was really trying to get at here, what that conversation with my soul was trying to work out in that book, is that there really is a place inside of a woman, and I wanted to acknowledge it, a beautiful, fertile, unbridled place. And when a woman stands there, goes to that place, she is utterly home. She belongs to herself. She's complete. She is enough. Well, following the mermaid chair, I had the great joy of writing a novel with, uh, I mean, a memoir with my daughter, Ann Kid Taylor, called Traveling with Pomegranates. And it was about our travels to Greece and France together over the course of about two or three years. When the book opens, it's the summer of 1998. And I was turning 50 years old. And my daughter was graduating from college. And we went off to Greece to mark these two big milestones in our lives. And it was during these travels that I came to realize that I needed to reconnect with this daughter whom I hardly knew. I, need to, I needed to find her in a new way. So this conversation with myself became a search for my daughter, but it also was about the transition going on in my life. Um, here, this story is really about a young girl leaving college with no idea what to do with her life, and about a 50-year-old woman heading off into older womanhood without any idea what to do with her life either. Because this is the moment when I began to decide whether I was going to write The Secret Life of Bees or not. Was, could I find the clarity? Could I find the courage to do that? And I was in a kind of creative vacuum at the time. You know how you want, the, you want to find that potency for the third act? Well, it was in France that I found these black-skinned Madonnas, these gorgeous Madonnas, the oldest Marys in the world. There's a May Sarton verse that I love. Old woman, I meet you deep inside myself. There, at the root bed of fertility, I find you. You are the silence beneath my words. And I found these dark-skinned Madonnas to, well, I fondly call them the old woman. And it was where I met this new image of what I thought of as the divine feminine. And of course, I came home and she found a starring role in The Secret Life of Bees. <laughs> My new novel is about two women's quest for freedom and how they invented their wings. It's about women's daring. It's about their desire to have a voice in the world. I was in the Brooklyn Museum in 2007 to see Judy Chicago's The Dinner Party exhibit. And while I was perusing the heritage panels where they list all of these women's names who've made significant contributions to Western literature, I came upon the names of Sarah and Angelina Grimke. And I became very excited because they 
were from Charleston, South Carolina, and I was living in Charleston at the time, and I did not know who they were. Uh, as it turned out, I had been driving by their house for 10 years, unaware that they were the first official female abolition agents in America and among the earliest feminist thinkers and pioneers for women, women's rights in our country. Now, what moved me about them is how unlikely it was that they would end up doing what they did. They were from this wealthy, slave-holding, aristocratic family, and yet few women have ever misbehaved so wonderfully as Sarah and Angelina Grimke. You know that's that saying, well-behaved women never make history. And they were arguably in the 1830s some of the most radical women to ever come out of the antebellum South. They underwent this long, painful metamorphosis, breaking from their family, their religion, their culture, their traditions, and they became exiles and they became pariahs. And I was so touched by Sarah, especially because of how deeply she yearned to, to have her life matter. She wanted to become and dare and speak and have a voice in the world. And that makes me think of another quote I stenciled on my wall, which is by the novelist Emile Zola, who said, if you ask me what I came to do in this world, I, as an artist, will answer, I am here to live out loud. And that's what Sarah really wanted. But almost from the first moment that I knew I would write a novel about the Grimke sisters, I also knew that I, would, I wanted to entwine it with the story of an enslaved character, that I couldn't write the novel unless I could do that, that both worlds had to be there. And I discovered that Sarah had a waiting maid then she'd been given a 10-year-old probably waiting maid when she was a girl of 11 or 12. And this enslaved girl was named Hetty. And she um, died in probably in adolescence. So we don't know anything about her. But I thought, here's the other half of the story. So I wanted to imagine her life and what might have been. And there is a moment in the novel where Handful says to Sarah, my body might be a slave, but not my mind. For you, it's the other way around. And it was true. Um, Sarah's quest was to liberate her spirit, her mind, and find herself. And this is a classic feminine journey, no matter what century we're talking about, that um, discovering an empowering sense of one's own self one's selfhood, and the ability, the daring, to declare that self. So the themes in the novel revolve around race and gender. I can't seem to get away from this. <laughs> and in fact, I don't want to get away from this. I don't know why novelists tend to gravitate to certain subjects over and over. You know, I wrote about civil rights and the secret life of bees. This time, I really wanted to go back to the roots of racism. I think I gravitate to issues of women and race because they matter so much to me, because my spirituality is not just about creativity. 
It is about justice and injustice and compassion and inclusion. They're at the core of my faith. So one of the things I wanted to get across in the novel is that it was in fighting for the rights of others that women in this country became aware of the oppression of their own injustice. The Grimke sisters were the ones who linked abolition and women's rights for the first time in this country, and it, it set off quite a controversy. Um, they were out there fighting for a woman's right to speak here in the public sphere. And they caught a lot of backlash because they were among the first to do this. Well, in conclusion, I want to just say that I am asked quite often, what do you hope readers will take away from your work? That's a large question. My hope, I suppose, if I had to, to articulate that, would be that readers would have a felt experience of what it's like to be an enslaved person in the 19th century, or a white woman without any rights, with shockingly few rights, or what it's like to be a 14-year-old girl looking for home and belonging, or a woman adrift in the middle of her marriage, or a 50-year-old woman trying to find the third act. What does it feel like? And I'm talking, of course, about empathy, which is taking another's experience and making it one's own. I think that is perhaps the most mysterious transaction in the human soul. And I think it's the real power of literature. I studied Ralph Waldo Emerson in college. And he talked about this concept of the common heart. He described it as a place inside every human where we share an intrinsic unity with all of humanity. Now, this idea has remained with me all of these years. I have never forgotten it. And as a, as a novelist, I have to believe in this place. And as a person, I believe in this place. So I began by saying that, for me, creativity is a conversation with one's soul. And I think, in that sense, I could say maybe writing has been my longest prayer. But I also think that in the sense that readers go to the common heart, that they can find their way into the common heart, a portal through a book, that reading becomes their prayer too. Thank you, Sue Monk Kidd. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister of the Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker is best-selling author Sue Monk Kidd. 
While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to invite the radio audience to join us here at Westminster Church for our next forum on Thursday, March 20 at noon, when the executive director of the Sierra Club, Michael Bruhn, will be our speaker. Visit our newly expanded website, westminsterforum.org, for information on our current season. And now, Sue Monk-Kidd, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. You referred to several re recurring themes in your books, and I'm wondering to what extent do you sense you're working something out in your writing, and what is that? I suspect most writers are trying to work something out, and I think it's largely a mystery. <laughs> um, I mean, I. I think this is what's probably behind returning to certain themes. For instance, race. Why do I return to that? Probably because I grew up in pre-civil rights South as a child in the 50s and as an adolescent coming of age and the backdrop of my life was very vivid of separate water fountains and Rosa Parks and civil rights marches and Martin Luther King marching near my hometown, um, being jailed in Albany, Georgia, where I was born. Um, I remember these things very vividly, and I think they're part of the stuff of my history and my life. So um, maybe it's an act of redemption. Maybe it is an act of understanding. Um, but I, I suppose there's purpose. There's purpose in it. You're a, a daughter and a granddaughter and a great-great-granddaughter. Have you ever traced your heritage back and seen how your family lived, say, in the 19th century in the South? Well, we've done, we haven't done as much genealogy as we probably should, but I was very curious about whether or not there were slaves in the family, I assure you. And so we did some search and from and it's probably not as thorough as it should be, but we could not find any evidence of this. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that my families didn't own slaves, but we couldn't find a, a shred of evidence to... In fact, I don't think my families, from what I can tell, had enough money to own slaves. Um, I grew up um, in a little town in Georgia, and recently I returned there actually um, just in de this past December, because we were celebrating the 185th anniversary of the Monk Farm, where my great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother are buried, and they were squatters. So um, we we're very rooted in that time and place, and I feel that connection, you know, to to my family and to that place there. And we actually built a wall there similar to the one in The Secret Life of Bees. I don't know if, if you've read that. You might remember there's a wall where we put prayers. And my parents stick little prayers in those stones all the time. They're still alive at 92. Mm. Uh, as you continue to do your writing today, who or what informs you personally to address so heartfully the issues of race and discrimination in our society today? What are your sources today? Mm. Well, I, I've been influenced by um, many African Americans. I, I read the whole collective 
writings of Martin Luther King, and I found his life deeply inspiring. Um, also, Alice Walker's book, The Color Purple, had a big impact on me as well. Um, I've been moved by reading the biographies of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and reading all through the slave narratives of the 1930s and then the 19th century slave narratives. And if, you know, 12 Years a Slave is a book that I read in, for research for my novel some years ago. And there's one by a female enslaved woman called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl that's really worth reading as well, a very uh, dramatic and harrowing story. So I think all of these stories and narratives have inspired me um, to write as fully and deeply as I can about race. Is there any one of your characters in your novels you most identify with? Well, Sarah was a dissident daughter. And I actually identify a little bit with her in some ways. You know, she, she had to find her voice. And she had failures of courage like me. She was sometimes slow to take her leap. I can identify with a lot of that. I mean, my enculturation was very strong. And I had to learn how to think and act outside of the world that shaped me. And I think this is sometimes a journey, you know, we have to make internally. So I identify with Sarah, and probably a part of all of my characters, even the bad ones, I probably identify with. I, I hate to go so far as to say they're projections of who I am, because we've got a whole range of them, but I think parts of me are in them, probably. Did you stencil the words on your wall before you started writing, while you wrote, or after you were successful? <laughs> well, I'll tell you how that started. It was very um, strange. One night, I had a dream. All right. I'm one of these people who writes my dreams down, because, you know, I have read a lot of the work of C.G. Jung, and he talks about the importance of dreams, so I started writing my dreams down because I think it is another way that the soul tries to speak, although it's often incoherent. Right? But one night I had a dream, and I was walking up the stairwell, and, these, and the, the walls were speaking the most inspiring things to me. <laughs> and the next morning I said, I think my walls want to talk to me. And I'm going to stencil what I think they ought to say. <laughs> and so I went on this quest for these quotes that would really go to the heart of what was important to me as a writer. This came after The Secret Life of Bees was published. And it informed my, the writing that I have done since then. What is the most difficult part of the writing process for you? Well, the most difficult process is also my favorite process. So this is a real paradox, the solitude. I love the solitude of writing, and I find it difficult. Um, this last novel that I wrote, The Invention of Wings, uh, took me four years to write. And I was essentially hibernated or cocooned 
and working very hard in this place of solitude. I was alone most of the time. My husband would send the dog in to get me. <laughs> and she would come in with a toy and drop it at my feet. And she was about the only one that could get me out of there, I guess. But I'm very um, immersed in that world, and it is a, an alone place for me with my characters and the story and the narrative and the kind of focus I have to find to bring to it. So yes, it's, it's the solitude. It's hard sometimes. You spoke about the world's sense of urgency and contrasted that with the soul's slower pace. In today's world of instant answers and barrage of information, how has that affected your writing, if at all? Well, I find it um, distracting for my writing, actually. Um, and I may be, you know, an odd duck, I don't know. But I find that I have to find this, particularly when I'm writing, a, a contemplative rhythm. I, I like to refer to it as conscious loitering. <laughs> Because loitering really is a good thing in a lot of ways. It's just to, to be without any purpose other than being within oneself. And this centers me, it grounds me, it allows me, most of all, the time and place to have this conversation that I need to have with this deeper part of myself or to go to that deeper part of myself. Um, and to listen. I think listening is so important. I don't know how to do that with all of the, you know, uh, Twitter and Facebook and all of this that is going on. It's kind of a whirlwind, and I think our attention span is shrinking dramatically with it. And I'm about the long form. So it, it's attention, actually, I think, for many writers, and it is for me. And I kind of go tack back and forth in these worlds and um, try to navigate both of them and sometimes do both of them poorly, you know. Many people feel that books are an outdated art form given the electronic age in which we live and the immediacy of information. Do you agree with that or is yours an art form here to stay? You cannot convince me that books will go away. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and of course, I'm talking about the physical book, you know. But I also acknowledge that um, something very new is here to stay too, and it's going to grow, and, be, and it's part of our world. And I, I see my grandson reading off, you know, books off a of Kindle and textbooks. And so it's a different world, but I still believe that we are always going to want to hold that concrete book in our hands, and I think that we will find a place for both of them because, you know, a book can be beautiful and it can be solid. And as a writer, I deal in, abst I deal in abstractions all the time. I'm in an ideal world. So when it comes time for me to read, maybe because of that, I want something with heft in it. I want to feel it, you know. And I love the beauty of the book itself. And I, I think the soul needs to be fed that. So, you know, I'm old school. But I bless everybody who reads electronically, too, though I do. 
Minneapolis is one of the most literate cities in the country, as you know, a well-read bunch tonight. I'm guessing that most of you are members of book clubs. Are you a member of a book club? Yes, myself, me and not myself. <laughs> how, how often do you meet? <laughs> Every night in bed at nine o'clock, <laughs> I open my book and have that experience. Well, I have been um, part of book clubs, and in a way, I guess, I am in a book club with my daughter. We read books together at the same time, and we meet and discuss them, so I think that probably qualifies. And I think they are fantastic, and I owe a great deal to book clubs. Um, and I have been members of many book clubs over the years, but at the moment, I think it's just my daughter and I reading together and picking books. Yeah. Did you ever regret uh, changing your career from nursing to writing? You know, I don't, but um, I think there are many people out there that are happy I changed directions because I'm not sure I was that good a nurse. <laughs> you know, you, you, um, I think the thing that you love and you give yourself over to is the thing that you probably are most likely going to excel at. And um, so I'm not sure that I was the best nurse in the world, and I, pro I never killed anyone, I'm glad to say. <laughs> but I think I belonged in writing, so I, I don't regret that, no. Uh -huh. Do you write more for yourself or for others, and maybe to affect others' beliefs or their worldview? Well, this is a question I go back and forth about. Um, when I'm in my study and I'm writing, I'm not thinking about who I'm writing for. I'm just in the story. I'm trying to write almost instinctively and listen to what's coming and trust that. But when I'm not in my study, I'm all about the reader. <laughs> I'm all about um, picturing that reader and how this will become an empathetic experience for the reader. I mean, I can't separate myself from the experience of writing and think about it it in that way. It's, it's not a dialectic like that. It's, it's just an immersion in the process and becoming sort of in the flow of that. But if I had to say who I'm writing for and who I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the reader and how this will affect their heart. I want to change people's thoughts. I want to enlighten their minds, you know, cause them to think or know something new. But what I really want is to get their heart. That's what I want. Now you create and uh, employ the notion of ritual in many of your novels. Can you describe how, how that happens as you write, uh, women's rituals particularly? Are, are you intentional about this, or did it just sort of emerge in the story itself? Well, they just seem to um, pop up. It's like women's communities. I didn't set, I don't set out to, well, there's going to have to be a community of women in this novel and there's going to have to be a ritual. I don't think that way. I'm just uh, writing and seeing what comes organically in the story. And it does seem, though, given who I am and my proclivities and what matters to me and my worldview and all of that, you know, the history of the writer is always in there somewhere. 
and also memories of the writer, and also the worldview of the writer, I think, is somehow tucked in there, um, even not in all the characters, but in some, perhaps. And um, so here comes the rituals. You know, I, I believe in the power of ritual, religious ritual and spiritual ritual, to change us. They, they give us a way to navigate and do commerce with the soul. And so that's why the wall in The Secret Life of Bees, you know, I had, I, it was a way for them to um, put their prayers or their burdens in order to lighten something inside. So just that ritual act of doing it, just like communion or any other kind of um, religious ritual, has a certain effect and power on us. It has gravity in us. So I believe in it, so here it comes, you know, it will just find its way into the story somehow. A number of questions asked about the uh, film version of The Secret Life of Bees. Were you satisfied with the movie? I thought they did a good job with that movie, actually. I have a healthy respect now for how hard that is. <laughs> I, I mean, to take a 300-plus page novel and turn it into 100 pages of just pure dialogue is a very hard thing to do, and I didn't quite realize that until I had some collaborations with the screenwriter and director of The Secret Life of Bees, and. I thought she understood the novel, and um, I thought she did a very good job of representing the novel. And um, it was something I worried about a little bit in the beginning, but I'm pleased with how it turned out. Did, did you have any control over any aspect of this? Uh, did they ask you your opinion on certain features of the book? Or? They did ask my opinion, but I don't think I had much clout, really. <laughs> Um, Did they ask your casting <laughs> opinions? Did you? You know, they were very generous in asking me my opinions. They asked me about cast initially. I don't think they paid much attention to me about that. But they did um, send me the scripts going through various drafts, and they asked me a lot of my thoughts and ideas. And sometimes they really did listen to me, and I had a finger in it. But they, I think that's a little unusual. But so I was fortunate that way. One of our guests here this evening notes that the best line in your book was missing from the movie. You no doubt remember what the best line in your book was. <laughs> well, like I said, I'm always getting enlightened about what I'm doing, so please somebody tell me. <laughs> Here's the best line in your book. It was something like, now you get to be your own mother. Oh. You remember that line? Yeah, I do. That, well, that's the whole idea, isn't it? That um, we have to find the mother in ourselves. And that was something that my character, August, tried to bestow on my character, Lily. It's, there comes a time when you have to figure out how to mother your own self to bring that kind of nurturing to her. So I'm glad whoever that is liked that line. That's good. Uh, you describe your, your spirituality being linked to the sense of justice, the need for justice in the world. How does that, how does that justice-seeking uh, desire of yours play itself out? Well, I think essentially it plays itself uh, out through my work, through my writing. I mean, this is, this is the only set of skills I have, people, <laughs> is, is to write. Um, and I give everything I have to it, you know? So I want to 
ignite in people maybe a sense through the invention of wings, for instance, of how far we've come, but how far we have to go with race and gender. That, you know, race is the original sin of this country and a great wound, and it's not healed and it's not resolved yet. And I feel that way about women, too. And I think um, the best way for me to approach issues of injustice, and there are just so many, is to is to write because that's what I do best. You know? mm -hmm. One of our audience members says, I'm a high school English teacher and we teach the secret life of bees. Other than that, what book should every teenager read <laughs> and why? Oh gosh. Well, I'll try to think of some, I always feel like I'm on Jeopardy when this happens. <laughs> Um, I'll try to think of books that I read in high school that had a big impact on me. It may be different now, but um, when I read Kate Chopin's The Awakening, it was quite profound for me. I think sometimes looking at lives through the historical realm is sometimes the clearest way to see ourselves in the present. And that's what that book did for me. Um, Thoreau, Walden, big impact on me. Anne Frank, of course, the diary of Anne Frank. Um, Death Be Not Proud, I, don't, I hadn't thought of that in so long. Um, that was a, a hugely important book for me. I think it was by John Gunther um, about the journey of his, of his son who had a brain tumor. And I remember it ripped my heart out as a teenager in high school, but I never thought about um, life the same way again. So, I mean, those are a few that come to my mind. Um, Letters to a Young Poet by Rilke, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Good. We have time for one more question and answer. We probably have some aspiring young writers either here tonight or in the radio audience. What advice would you give to an aspiring young writer just getting started? I think it would be the same advice I gave my daughter when she went to college. It turned out she was an aspiring writer eventually, but at that time she had no idea what she wanted to do. But I sat up you know, till about 2 a.m., right, trying to give her some parting advice in a card I had bought for her. And I couldn't think what to say. It was as if I thought I would never get this chance again. <laughs> so I was going to take her to school the next day, her father and I. And so what I ended up writing was, be true to yourself. Have the courage to be true to yourself and stand by yourself. Um, it was as simple as that. And maybe that is really the key. You know, writing, as I said, is an act of courage. It's, it's about having something to say and the ability to say it, but the real thing is about the courage to say it at all. And it has to do with some sense of truth in oneself and finding that truth and being willing to have an authentic conversation with it. So I think I would say that believe in yourself, but first of all, find the self you want to stand by 
and then believe in that self, because that's fundamental to writing. Thank you, Sue Monk Kidd.